Thank you, George. Thank you, Ernie. Hi, everybody. Hi. My Hi. name is Ernie, and I am an alcoholic. Hi. And I'd rather be right here, right now, with all of you, than any place else on the face of the earth. What do you think of that? Hi. And this is a gift that I've been given in this tremendous fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I've learned here from you how to be happy where I am right now. This is the reality that I, that I have at this moment. You are my universe right now. And you know, when I was drinking, I always wanted to be someplace else. I was never comfortable where I was. And here, I can appreciate and savor the moments we have together. There are other reasons that I'm happy to be here today. I'm happy to have had the signal honor to have been on a program with people like Don C. and Don W., your trustee, with uh, Sarah, Clara, Gary. Uh, I enjoyed so much that wonderful Al-Anon skit yesterday that was based on Kathy and my own life. I don't know how they got all the facts put together so accurately. Uh, and I'm particularly happy to uh, be with people who have devoted a great part of their AA experience to service work. I also had the privilege and the pleasure of having been a delegate from the metropolitan Washington, D.C. area. And incidentally, I do have a business in Delaware, but I live in metropolitan, in suburban Washington, D.C. I was a delegate to New York back on Panel 17 when Bill W. used to come back and hang around in the back of the room and fellowship with us. And what a, what a gift that was. I see Tony up front here. He and I met down in Paducah. And last night he reminded me of a story that I told, and I was going to tell it anyhow today, Tony. I don't. Uh, it's an old story. I like it. I like the way I tell it. And uh, it seems that there was a man that died and went to heaven, and he got up there, and Saint Peter said, uh, "Welcome. We keep people up here by denomination. What denomination do you belong to?" And he said, I don't belong to any denomination. He says, I just try to live a good life and do the best I could. And St. Peter said, I'm sorry. He says, here you have to pick a room with one of the denominations. So he says, I'll take you around let you pick your own out. So he took him to one room and there's people in there. They're just sweating profusely and they're kneeling there and they're clutching their rosaries. And uh, he said, uh, Saint Peter, who are these people? And St. Peter says, these are the Catholics. He says, a lot of them don't even know they're up here yet. And the uh, guy shook his head. He says, do you have any other choices? And uh, St. Peter says, well, let me take you to the next room. And he took him to the next room. And here are people sitting there and men in starch collars, very severe, looking straight ahead. Their hymnals there. The women next to them, all prim and proper, tailored clothes, little thin blue lips, very severe. And he said, who are these people? And the St. Peter said, these are the Protestants. And the guy shook his head. He says, for eternity. He says, do you have any other choices? St. Peter says, we have one more room. He took him to the third room. He opened the door up and billows of smoke came out. <laughs> A tremendous smell of coffee. People were laughing and joking in there and hugging one another. And he said to Saint, he got enthused. He says, Saint Peter, who are these people? Saint Peter says, we don't know. They won't tell us. They say they're only here a day at a time. You're those people.
I've, uh, since we have our uh, esteemed trustee here, Don W., who has now this year become chairman of the Grapevine uh, Board, and since we were, our program this weekend was graced by a lovely lady, Sarah Price from New York, I'd like to tell a little vignette, my own experience that ties the two of them together. Back in 1989, and my ethnic background is Lithuanian, I'm of Lithuanian heritage, I picked up the grapevine and I start to read an article and I look at the end, the guy that wrote us, Romus O. from Vilnius, Lithuania. And uh, gee, that name almost jumped off the page when I'm from Vilnius. There's an AA member over there. So I sat down, I wrote to the grapevine, I said, forward my letter to this guy. I told him I was going to try to get over there to see him because my wife and I were going to Poland, but we actually never got there that year because uh, you had to go through Moscow. It was still behind the Iron Curtain, and I didn't want to go that route. <laughs> and uh, so anyhow, unbeknownst to me, Romus brought my name over to the International Conference in 1990, gave it to someone else of my ethnicity. And the following year, I got a letter, and it said there's about 10 of us going to Lithuania to carry the message. And I signed right up, and Kathy signed up for the Al-Anon part of it. And we went over to Lithuania, and we had a, it was a spiritual odyssey. We traveled all over the country. We went to hospitals and talked to the patients. We talked to the medical staff. We talked to the public at nights at open meetings that had been advertised on the radio and the newspapers. We were going around in this rickety old bus that the uh, government had furnished. And our meeting place when we came back was in a tiny, decrepit room, all packed in there. There's no private property as of then in Lithuania, and so you took what the government furnished. And there was this very spirited discussion amongst the local group about should they do this or should they do that. And I understand a little bit of Lithuanian. My folks, I'm first generation, they spoke it when I was a kid. And this discussion is going back and forth, and I'm straining to understand it. And Roma says, but Sarah Price says. And I thought, my God, what a fellowship this is. That uh, here in the this little building, uh, in, in this decrepit atmosphere, uh, they're making, uh, they're talking about the uh, ray of hope and the guidance they've gotten from our general, general services office. So you see the work you and I do have the privilege of doing, the ripple effect. We don't know where it ultimately lands. And it's, it's such a tremendous thing. So by being here this weekend, I think we're all doing powerful 12-step work on a worldwide basis. Now, that's only some of my introductory remarks. I'm nowhere close to getting into my talk yet. <laughs> There's nobody really new here, yes, unless the young lady with three days. I don't know if she's here this morning. But uh, what I always say in case there are new people at a meeting, I always explain what I mean when I say I'm an alcoholic. When I say I'm an alcoholic... I mean simply <clears throat> that I cannot take a drink safely. This is all that I admit. I don't admit when I say I'm an alcoholic that I'm necessarily psychotic, neurotic, weak-willed, wishy-washy, lazy, no account, shiftless, unemployable, unemployed, of little learning, or of poor background. I only admit that I can't take a drink safely. And I think this is very important 
for the newer person to learn, because if there is a word that has delayed and even denied people the great gift of sobriety, it's this dirty word to some of us at the beginning, alcoholic. It has such a grating, grinding sound. Now, saying that I can't take a drink safely, maybe that definition isn't very scientific, but it served me well since the 16th of February of 1961. For this, I'm very grateful. And uh, it's a definition I heard from my sponsor to be the man who 12-stepped me the day I came to AA and came to my very first meeting. Now, my drunkalogue is a drunk is a story of the one night stand, and I'm going to go through it. I think it's important for anybody. If there is anybody new, it gives them a chance to identify. I uh, my philosophy in those days was that Big Ernie works hard and he plays hard. That's still my philosophy. And uh, after a tough day in court, I was a trial lawyer or after an arduous day in the office listening to clients because I've never been a good listener. Five o'clock would roll around and uh, I'd meet some of my classmates or colleagues and we would uh, go. I always like to drink in a group because I like to share myself, have people enjoy my company. <laughs> and uh, so we'd go out on the town. But occasionally uh, when I felt low and when I felt depressed, I did some solitary drinking. Now, let me tell you this. When I came here and when, when my sponsor, Buck, told me what an alcoholic was, a person that couldn't drink safely, there were a lot of thoughts going through my mind. There were a lot of I nevers. I had never been in a treatment center. I had never consulted a physician because of my drinking. I had never had a prescription because of my drinking. I had never been divorced because of drinking for any other reason. Never been fired from a job because of drinking. Uh, I didn't say I'd never been arrested because of drinking, did I? Like a few of you there, there have been some unjust arrests in my background. <laughs> I accumulated, while I was in college and law school, somewhere between six and ten arrests. I wish I had kept better records. I didn't know there would come a day here in AA. It would be a matter of prestige. <laughs> and uh, for all I know, AA could come out with a pension plan of some kind. I could lose out, I could lose out on some of my benefits. But anyhow... I accumulated, I don't know, maybe 10 arrests while I was in college and law school. And I thought this happened to every red-blooded young American boy. I was later to find that the character committee of the District of Columbia Bar Association didn't feel that way about it. Whenever I was to be sworn in as a lawyer, I had to go through a rig big rigmarole. But after I became a lawyer, I was only arrested once for public intoxication. And as a result of that arrest, I got a nickname in the Washington area in AA of Ernie the Attorney. Now, I'll tell you how that came about. As I said, I usually like to drink with an entourage, with a group of people. But occasionally when I felt down, when I felt low, I preferred to do solitary drinking by myself. And I preferred to drink in a low-class place. There was reason for this, because if you go into a real dive and you're feeling low, you can look down on the other patrons, you know, at these bums that are in here. And there was a place like this in uh, downtown Washington, Jimmy's, a basement bar. And I went in this one day, and I was feeling down, and I sat at the first stool at the bar drinking orange juice and uh, vodka. And I'm sitting there, and there's a row of tired old men there. They're sitting there. No, There's no conversation going on. They're sitting there in the long army coats that had been given at the mission. 
and everybody's sitting there having their own private good time. I was sitting there having my private good time. I was making circles on the bar with my glass. Well, we gave up a lot when we quit drinking, didn't we? (laughs) Arranging my change geometrically in configurations. But the old men were talked out years ago. They were just sitting there having their private good time. I was having a little bit of a meditation, looking at myself in the mirror in a back bar, thinking, you know, how tough I had had it, how my parents hadn't been wealthy, how I had to struggle to get through law school. And I noticed I was getting a little fat. I already weighed 308 pounds. Shows you what a problem some of us have with the honesty part of this program. As a matter of fact, alcoholism being cunning, baffling, and powerful, when I came here, I thought I was too fat to be an alcoholic. My idea of an alcoholic in the old days was a guy that had a lot of slack in the seat of his pants, sort of looked like his rear end had been shot off in World War II. You've seen that type, haven't you, down around the missions with the, with the baggy, skinny pants? That was an alcoholic. You couldn't be an alcoholic if you weighed 308 pounds. But anyhow, I'm sitting there with the old men, and it looked like we were watching a tennis match. Every time the door opened, we're looking over at the door. I don't know who we were expecting. Some unescorted Vassar girl. Maybe Harry Truman popping in for a beer. But we're sitting there. And we looked in the wrong direction. We were looking at the door, but that night, the action came from another corner of the barroom. And back in the far corner of this barroom, there was a drunken woman. Oh. (laughs) This lady got in an argument with the owner, who was tending bar. He's a pretty good belter himself. And they got uh, arguing back and forth. I don't know whether she got the wrong drink or the wrong change or whatever happened. Finally, she hurled some obscenities across that room that visibly shook up these old men I was sitting with. They thought, we thought this was a respectable low-class place. Jimmy got right on the phone, called the police up. They were there in two minutes. I sat there sipping away on my vodka. Remember, I have this record of six to ten arrests in the background. But I'm sitting there like a good boy, just luxuriating in being so close to all of this trouble and not being personally involved yet. And the cops go over and they call her this woman. She was one of these people like you see in some Red Skelton skit. They're dragging her and half the furniture out of the place. These old wire back chairs are being drug along. She's swinging her purse around really like Annie the cop fighter. And... A terrible time. Two policemen could have been. And as they dragged her by my stool, why, in a flash of inspiration, I don't know. But I reached into my pocket and I pulled out one of my lawyer cards. And I says, baby, if they give you a hard time, call Ernie the attorney. And I never got to pull my arm back. The cops jerked me right out to the paddy wagon. And she and I rode down to the number two precincts together, sharing our experience, strength, and hope with each other. You know, my partner had to come down and get me out of jail the next morning, pay ten bucks to buy me out. I've told this story a thousand times. And here about a year ago, I was speaking at a breakfast in Washington, and he was sitting there in the audience with his daughter. His daughter is now a member of AA, been sober a year, so I asked him to get up and take a little bow for having gotten me out of jail that day. But after a tough day in the office or in court, we'd go 
and I try to uphold the standards of the bar, drink in the better places. There was a place a block away from my office, the Jefferson Hotel. Very, very, very nice place. Uh, they had a terrific organ player there that had a sixth sense about him. He could tell the mood I was in as I walked in. If I was in the mood for show tunes, he'd be playing show tunes. If I seemed to have a Spanish mystique about me that night, he'd play my theme song. I get ideas. Adios, muchachos. La, da, da, di, da, 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 da. Very nice music. But anyhow, uh, I was sort of the leader of the group. I'd order, and that first drink would just relax me, unwind me, and the other guys are just getting started. I'm ordering the next round, a little ahead of the rest. And uh, then I'd excuse myself. I'd slip out to the phone. Kathy's at home with the six kids. I forget to tell you later. I probably won't, but she, we wound up with eight. We're Catholic. And uh, we practiced the rhythm system, but we never got the beat. But anyhow, I'd go out to the phone. I'd call her up. I'd say, Kathy, don't hold dinner. I'm tied up here with some clients. Soon as I can shake loose, I'll be right along. And the organ music is playing in the background. And she'd say, Ernie, please, please come home. Don't stay out and get drunk tonight. I'd say, Kathy, I'm down here trying to scratch a living out for you people. You're giving me this static, this romance. Tonight I am going to stay out just to let you know who's the head of our household. Not slam that receiver down. And I'll tell you, I never drank comfortably. My intentions were always good. You know, I always drank with a mantle of guilt and of pressure. Like if I'd go out to drink, I'd say, well, six o'clock, I'm going to be out of here. Uh, one more, 630, always that. But when my wife gave me this kind of static, now I could do that sweet revenge drinking, that get a even drinking, that misunderstood husband drinking. So she had like given me a pass. So I slammed the receiver. Now I'm, I'm, I got the night off. I'm on the town. And the evening would wear on. I'd go to order around. One of the guys would say, hey, Ernie, hold up. I've had enough. I'd say, we're just getting into the shank of the evening. He says, look, I'm worried about driving. I've had six already. I'd say, okay, you panty waste, go on home. That's the problem in this country today. No father figure in a typical house. And the party would break up, and I'd go back, and I'd tidy up my 308-pound body, freshen up, and I'd go floating out of that Jefferson Hotel. And as I'd float out of there, I felt I was the, the man's man, the ladies' man, the raconteur, the bon vivant, the social lion, the man of letters. Boy, what a deflationary program this AA is. I found out here I was just a 308-pound bum. And I'd go out, and I would hit the cocktail circuit, the lounges, and usually I would wind up someplace about 1.30 in the morning where I had met these fascinating people, these newfound friends. And here at a quarter to two, they're going last call. They want to shut the place up and break the party up, and I'd persuade them to go to some after-hours place over in Chinatown, maybe, and I'd come rolling in at home three, four, five, as late as six in the morning. Maybe that's why I never needed a, a morning drink. That was one of my I-nevers. <laughs> if you were serious about your drinking like I was, six, seven in the morning after a couple hours of sleep, you're still humming those show tunes. <laughs> now, my wife tried every approach in the books on me. She tried the confrontation. 
and that would result in a big fight. In those days, I don't know if she had ever heard of AA. I know she had never heard of, uh, she might have heard of AA. I know she had never heard of Al-Anon. She's a member in good standing of Al-Anon today, and that fellowship has enriched our lives greatly. And uh, she'd confront me, and we'd get in a big fight, and I'd slam the door and go out, and she learned that approach didn't work. Another approach she used is what I call the clinging vine approach. She didn't sound this way, and she doesn't like me to imitate her, but this is the way I heard her, with this grinding, nagging voice. I'd come down in the morning and she'd say, Ernie, Ernie, the kids' report cards had to be signed last night, and you weren't here to sign them. The kids were going to parochial school, so I'm going to have to sign them and turn them in. Ernie, I promised Sister Joey would get a haircut. Joey had hair down to his shoulders, and this was before the Beatles. This is when the kids were wearing those buzz cuts. I promised Sister that uh, he'd get a haircut, and now he's going again without a haircut. Makes me look like I'm not telling her the truth. Ernie, like grinding on my, and I'd have to sit there and just listen to all of this, just get through it somehow. But an approach she used that seemed to work the best for her is I'd come down in the morning, and this is after being on a bad one the night before, and I'm uh, closing one eye to read the paper, drinking a little coffee. Brad's going in and out of the toaster. She's getting things ready for the kids for school. I'm waiting for the bombs to fall. And I'd wait. And now she's not being friendly. She's not being unfriendly. Speaking when spoken to, strictly all business. But I'm uh, I'm uh, there drinking a little coffee. I'm waiting for the bombs to fall. And finally, I said, "Some of us are impatient." I'd say, "Kathy, okay, cut the act. I know what's bugging you. It's my drinking. But I'll tell you what the real problem is. The real problem is you are not normal like other women. That's the real problem. You see, my wife and I both met." when we were students at Catholic University in Washington. I was in college. She was in the graduate nursing school. And on her 21st birthday, a couple of her girlfriends took her down to the Potomac River to a nice seafood restaurant. She had her first drink of beverage alcohol. And uh, she doesn't remember exactly what it was, but she got a little tipsy on this drink. She got a little silly. After that, a little uncomfortable, a little nauseated. And she hasn't had a drink from that day till this day. <laughs> Kathy should have stood up last night when they called 45 years. because she's, she's 45 years sober now. And I said, if you were normal like other women, I'd come home. We could have a gracious drink together. Make a pitcher of martinis and discuss the day's news and so forth. This was a lie. My idea of a gracious drink wasn't to come home have all these little hands with peanut butter and jelly on them pulling on my trousers saying, fix my wagon, Daddy. But I said, Kathy, if my drinking bothers you like this, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit, as the philosophers say, semper pro semper. I'd studied all of this at Catholic University. Beautiful expression, meaning always and forever. My drinking bothers you, I'm going to quit like that. And as I'd say that, my eyes were sort of missed up with the inner goodness I saw in myself. <laughs> Not only was I going to quit drinking, but I was going to quit smoking. I told you I weighed 308 pounds. I was going to go on a diet. 
We're Catholic. I hadn't been to confession in a long time. Saturday, I was going to go to confession. I had a lot of surprises in store for my wife. I was going to go to confession on Saturday, and Sunday, I was going to march up to the communion rail with the kids. And it makes me almost tearful now to think of this spontaneous, (laughs) spiritual and emotional, physical regeneration of a man. But some of you have said some things like this, too, haven't you? And when we said them, we met them, didn't we? I met them right to the very depths of my shallow being. Anyhow, Kathy says, uh, all right. I was pretty persuasive. Remember, I was a trial lawyer. I says, uh, I says, I really mean it this time. She says, okay, I'm going to see if you keep your promise this time. They call that enabling nowadays. We didn't know those words back then. A lot of that stuff's confusing to me. You know, like in those days, if you put codependent down on your tax return. But anyhow, it's all different now. But uh, (laughs) so... I would go downtown that day, and by this stage of my drinking, these one-night stands of mine, I would have hangovers for three or four days. My intentions were good. I'd go downtown. That first day, all I'd do is get downtown and keep my promise. I'd be home on time for dinner. I was home 5.30, 6 o'clock. And uh, I was uh, so hungover, I couldn't even light a cigarette. I'd be afraid my head would explode. Next day feeling a little bit better, I could go downtown and go through the motions. Maybe go to my office, open the mail up, see if any money came in. That would be about it. I'd be back home again for dinner, like I promised, two days in a row. Day number three, things are getting back to normal. I get up in the morning, get a little peck on the cheek as I leave. Go downtown, I get some work done. Come home that evening again on time. Kathy has her famous meatloaf dinner there. I'm going to give you the recipe. This meatloaf, seven loaves of bread stuffed into a pound of ground meat. This meatloaf, Catholics could eat it on Friday and with all rules. Listen, when you're maintaining those high standards I had, you had to economize someplace. We'd have this nice family dinner after dinner. We would go out take the books back to the library or maybe go to the five and ten, do some shopping. And things are getting back to normal. Day number four, I wake up. I wake up day number four. I'm 33 years old. I feel like a young lion. I go over and I throw the window open, take a big, deep breath of fresh air. It's football weather, invigorating. And I feel great. I feel great. And I would charge out of the house. And when those good days come along, you've got to grab them. I'd get four days' work done in one day. I would be so charged up with accomplishment by five that evening that I couldn't inflict myself on my family in that agitated state. And I would stop just for a beer. And sometimes I'd get almost home to a bar that was almost home and then work my way the whole way back downtown again, be off to the races. That's my drunkalog. There came a day in February of 1961 when I was out on the town... I crept in, got a couple hours of sleep. I got up, and I started to creep out. My wife stopped me. She says, wait a minute, Ernie. She says, I took you for better or for worse, but the children weren't a party to this agreement. And I'm going back to western Pennsylvania, wherever they'll have us. Your parents are my own. She lived in Pittsburgh. I lived in a little town, came from the town, Vandegrift. 
And uh, but I'm leaving today. And I didn't even argue with her that day. I got in the car and I started to drive downtown and the hangover hit me early that day. And right behind a tremendous lash of remorse. I wonder if anyone but a suffering alcoholic can know that the 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 soul sickness of remorse that an alcoholic can can experience that feeling of emptiness, terrible, oppressive uh, fear. I wonder. And I got downtown. I got a little rest in my office and I had to be in the federal courthouse that morning at 10 o'clock to argue a motion. I didn't know where I was going to be on a calendar that day, but that day I happened to be number one on the calendar. My motion was first. In fact, if it had been otherwise, maybe I wouldn't even be here today. But I argued my motion at 10 o'clock and I came out of the courthouse. 11 o'clock about it was and I stood there and I thought, what am I going to do? And I stood there on a corner. There are a few of you old enough to remember when Kennedy was inaugurated, there was a tremendous snowstorm. They had 10,000 troops clean the streets off. And by now in February, the dregs of this snow were in the gutter. And I looked at that dirty snow. That's just like I felt. I was standing there practically in the shadow of the Capitol building, just a couple of blocks away from the U.S. Capitol. And I, I says, I have to talk to somebody. And I went down the side street from the courthouse to the office of another lawyer. He and I had never been professionally really involved or drinking buddies. Our paths had crossed in both areas. Why I went to his office, I don't know, almost as if I were directed. And uh, I went in and I said, Hugh, come down the corner and have a cup of coffee with me. I got the whim-whams. My wife's going to leave me today. And he said, sit down. I'll send out for coffee. And I sat down, and we got to talking about the evils of booze. Hugh told me he hadn't had a drink in six months. And I said, gee, Hugh, that's wonderful, because everyone around the courts knows what a drunk you are. He didn't, he, he didn't like that too much. Then he dropped a bombshell on me. He said, I'm in AA. And I said, no. You, a former bomber pilot... You, an ex-assistant United States attorney, you, a tough criminal lawyer, you're with those tambourine rattlers or whatever they do. <laughs> now, let me set the context of my life. When Hugh made this disclosure to me, here's where I was coming from. I hadn't filed a tax return in five years. I had one suit of clothes. I didn't have a checking account. You hear of people that bounce checks? You've heard those stories in AA. My deposit bounced. <laughs> the last deposit I made to the National Bank of Washington, they sent my money back. They said, you're too much trouble. I'll tell you something ironic. That bank has gone down to tubes about two years ago. I'm sober and, and solvent here today. Yo, you hear AA people talk about owing their lawyers money? I owed my clients money. I used to borrow money from my clients. We owed about twenty-five, thirty thousand bucks, and nothing to show for it. Allowing for inflation would be like a hundred and a quarter or something today. Nothing to show for it. Five months behind on the rent. Utilities turned off all the time. No hospital insurance. No life insurance. No car insurance. Had an old car all beat up that'd been repopped about three times. Uh, had furniture look like something the Flintstones had given to Goodwill. <laughs> this was the context of my life. At the time, I came in AA, uh, that uh, Hugh made this disclosure to me. And when he told me he was an AA, you know what emotion I felt? I felt sorry for him. <laughs> I felt sorry for poor Hugh. He's in there with those AAs. The phone rang, and it was my sponsor to be calling, Buck Doyle. Big, tough Irishman. 
very judgmental type of person. I was to learn. And Buck called up. He said, Hugh, I'm going to the AA luncheon today. You want to go? And Hugh said, yeah. He says, by the way, there's a fat one here you might want to talk to. He says, I'm not, I'm not getting too far with him. Hugh hung up the phone and he says, my, we have sponsors in AA. My sponsor, you got to meet this guy. He's a man's man. He's an executive with Remington Rand. He uh, flew with General Chenault and the Flying Tigers over in China. Terrific guy. We're going to this luncheon. So why don't you come to the luncheon with us? I said, Hugh, my wife's leaving today. I don't want to go to some luncheon. And uh, he says, I'll even buy your lunch. I says, no, thanks. And uh, all of a sudden, a light bulb went on in my head. I says, wait a minute. If I go to this luncheon, well, after the lunch, will you call my wife up, tell her I've filled out all the forms, whatever you have, and that I've joined this AA thing? He says, we don't have any forms, but we'll, we'll give her a call. I went to the luncheon. I was impressed with the guys I met there. They were my kind of people. They were the drinking set, only they weren't drinking. They were sitting around discussing politics, government, business, sports, sobriety, everything else. We came back from the lunch. Buck got on the phone. He called my wife up. He said, Kathy, we're sitting here in a lawyer's office with your husband, Ernie. Ernie thinks he might have a problem with alcohol. What do you think? What do you think she thought? He says, you might not have any faith in this big clown. But maybe you can have some faith in this program. It's worked for me. It's worked for the lawyer whose office we're in. It's worked for hundreds of thousands of other people. And Ernie's willing to go to a meeting tonight. Oh, he was a terrific salesman. He says, why don't you stick around and see what happens? Poor woman had no place to go. She said, okay. That night I went to my first AA meeting right across the river in Northern Virginia, South Arlington Group, where I was to later become the GSR. And I went there to the meeting, and I thought to myself as I walked through those doors, look how you struggled, kid, to get through law school. Look how hard you had to work, and for what? You're going in with these drunks. And I went in there. There were about 80 people in a room, and I felt like they were divided into two groups, 79 in one group and me in the other group. If there's anybody new here, to you know the feeling. You know, these new people, they sit in these meetings. His parents were in the front row just exuding gratitude, and I was impressed. I, I heard his story. I was You couldn't help but be impressed. I thought to myself, this is a wonderful program for these people. <laughs> wonderful program. That night, a minor miracle happened. For the first time in my adult life, I consciously started to follow directions. You know, I'm a guy that always thought directions were for other people. Rules are for other people. With a lot of kids, when you buy toys or a wagon, they come in a box. You have to put them together because you get a discount. That's why you get the discount. And in that box are directions. I always take those out and throw them in a trash can. An hour later, when there's blood on my knuckles, you know. So that's the way I've done it. Still do it that way, some. Some. But anyhow, Buck told me to buy the big book. I bought the big book. I think it was four fifty then. Well, held the price pretty good, I think. He said, read it. I devoured it. But I don't think you can digest it in a lifetime. Even now, I pick it up and there's a lot of aha uh -huh stuff in there. It's different because I'm different today than I was hopefully yesterday. And it reads differently to me. So I read the big book. I was impressed. The first story in the book was our co-founder, Bill W., a big shot, a stockbroker. His story showed me that this program will work for big shots. In the second edition, there was a story 
Joe's woes in the back of the book. Here's a guy who'd been strapped down so many times in Bellevue, the flight deck in New York. Everybody there had written him off as a vegetable, and yet, hopeless case. Yet he came back to Bellevue again with a message of hope, carrying the message. That story proved to me that this program will work for anyone who is willing just to be willing. I followed the directions. I went to a meeting every night. I read the literature. I stuck. I, I hung out with the guys that had the big happy ebullient sobriety. There was so much happening then I couldn't even process it all. That first night I went to the meeting after the meeting. Next door to this meeting place, the home of this patent lawyer, they invited me over for ice cream. And I was the center of attraction there. The new kid on the block. And this AA is a funny organization. The worse your credentials are, the better they like you here. I says, I haven't filed a tax return in five years. They said, wonderful. They were so, so happy for me. So happy for me. You know, we need ego deflation at depth. But we also need healing affirmation. And almost in an unspoken way, that first night at the meeting and after the meeting, without saying it, it was communicated to me by the people of this fellowship, blessed fellowship like yourselves, that Ernie, you have intrinsic dignity because of your humanity. You are worth getting well. You have a sickness that's chronic and progressive and irreversible. Come aboard with us and we'll love you till you can learn to love yourself. Anyhow. I learned there that night that from those people and afterwards that in this fellowship, you don't have to have a suit of clothes. You don't have to have a buck in your pocket. You don't have to have a job. You don't have to have a home or a spouse. Uh, you don't even have to smell good. We, we prefer that you smell good. But uh, all you have to do is present yourself the way you are and you'll be accepted here. You know, it's such a gift to be able to come here and take the mask off that we've hidden behind so many of us, so much of our lives, and not be afraid to let somebody else see us as we are. Because here, as Sarah said yesterday, we feel safe. We can be vulnerable. We can really be our true selves. Maybe some, some of us never any more than when we're sharing and speaking at a meeting. Of course, what I have to remember, this, as George has said, it's been a great weekend and a great conference. But for me, the test of the value of this conference is how am I going to use all of this tomorrow? You know, the theme of the 12 steps is the joy of living, but this is an action program. I can never forget that. So I was doing everything they told me to do, going to the meetings every night. I remember this distinguished Navy captain uh, became one of the closest friends in life I ever had. He was a legal officer at the Naval Academy. I saw him at the meeting every night and uh, silver haired man. And I said, Buck, how long has Paul been in? And Buck says, two years. I couldn't believe that somebody that was two years sober would be going to a meeting every night. Paul never even knew what profound 12-step work he did on me by just being at these meetings that I was going to. Well, after a couple of months, Buck is picking me up every night like clockwork. By now, the kids know him and going way out of his way to pick me up. I says, Buck, let me drive for a change. Let me drive. He says, Ernie, you haven't been sober long enough to have good tires. You know... <laughs> We, we didn't all come in high bottom then, like a lot of you people. And I said, Buck, I says, I'm doing everything you guys tell me to do. Let me ask you a question. What are my creditors going to get off my back? He says, when you pay them, Ernie. Oh. I thought there was going to be some kind of general amnesty. You know, 
They're going to, everyone's going to say, you're a good boy, Ernie. You know, within uh, five, six, seven, eight years of becoming sober, so many good things happened to me with such rushing speed. I made money. Uh, I became president of the trial lawyers of the District of Columbia, president of my alumni association, delegate to New York for AA, chairman of the Boy Scout troop. I got involved in all of these activities. And so many good things happened so fast over such a long period of time, I won't even tell you how long, that I really overlooked the steps of this program. I stayed sober through the grace of God and the fellowship on you people that just kept me up till I was ready. I didn't know that this was really a totally start living program, a way of life. I thought it was a stop drinking program. So many good things happen when you just stop drinking, but that isn't the answer. It took me much time and great pain to learn that AA action, these activities are important because we don't resign from life. It was important to be involved in a bar association, in alumni affairs, in my church, in civic affairs, in my group. These activities are important, but that is not AA action. These things are external. AA action is internal. AA action, as Gary was talking so eloquently Friday night, is the working of these steps on our lives. And it's only when I embrace these steps in their as I was best able to do, that I got some measure of serenity from this program. Uh, I'm not going to talk a whole lot longer today, but let me tell you this. This morning, there's peace in my heart as far as alcohol is concerned. You know, here at AA, we call it serenity. A great penitent saint, if we were to pick saints, I would pick, uh, for AA, I'd pick St. Augustine because uh, his prayer good part of his life was catch me Lord but not yet not yet and that's that's been the, the way for many of us we, we want to hold on to some of these defects of character I didn't know that I didn't know I wanted to hang on there was so much a part of me but this morning I can say there's peace in my heart as far as alcohol is concerned St. Augustine defined peace as that tranquility which comes from order peace is that tranquility which comes from order when there's order in your life there's like a beautiful stillness. It's even. Things are, it's, it's like the, the water on the back bay. It's, it's nice and smooth. That's the way I feel about alcohol. Now, doesn't it make sense that if the major problem of my life can be resolved through the steps of this program, that these steps should work on other problems of daily living? I no longer have a problem with alcohol. I just have a problem with my own humanity. I have to contend with the problems of daily living. And the answer is yes. I've learned here, and I've learned all these. I was always thought I was such a quick study, and I found out I've been such a slow learner. It's taken. I'm running out of time, you know. I don't mean that the meeting here. I still have a couple hours here, but I mean, <laughs> but uh, I've been such a slow. I've been such a slow learner that uh, uh, these very profound things. It's taken me a lifetime. Uh, to learn them. I've learned from you all because the God of my understanding speaks through through all of you that I can't be I can't be happy, joyous and free on last week's spirituality. It's a new ball game every day. That's good and bad. It's a challenge every day, but also if I screwed up today, I can start my day over, I have a new day tomorrow. It's it's all fresh. I remember the first nun I ever met in AA, I was on a program with her 
And uh, she said, you know, I devoted and consecrated my whole life to God and gave him everything. Poverty, chastity, obedience. And she said, my standards were so high that every morning I got up and I was condemned to be a daily failure. And it's only here in this Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous that I acquired the humility to admit that I am a broken, fallible person and that I need help from others and that every day I just do the best I can. This is a this is a lesson. These words I've just spoken. This is a lesson that's taken me a lifetime to learn. AA has been so very, very good to us. These eight children, all eight of them are university graduates. Half of them have advanced degrees. We have an obstetrician in the family, a couple lawyers, a nurse, a couple of teachers. None of them uh, seem to have a problem with alcohol or drugs. None of them even smoke. We have 12 grandchildren. My affliction might skip a generation and genetically fall on all of them like a plague. If it does, I want this fellowship to be here for them. For that, you and I are responsible. You know, there was a young lady in the room last night that's been sober for three days. From a historical perspective, in history, she's going to be looked upon as among the founding people of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're only in the first 60 years of one of the greatest movements of all time. When you look at history, we look at centuries and a millennium. Look at the Christian church, the people in the first century. They call them the fathers of the church. This is really the newest person here is still in the beginning of a most exciting, exciting movement. I've never experienced anything like it any place else. The commitment, the community, the consensus we have here. In my church, any place else, in the bar, no place can you get into anything without, uh, you know, all this diversity, plurality, substantial disagreement. Here, most of us are looking the same way most of the time. What a gift that is. How refreshing that is. So I want this to be here for them like it was for Bill and Bob. You know, I brought the book along with me, Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timer, so I could get in a little bit of the feel of this Ohio AA. Uh, and I enjoyed rereading it this weekend. And I sure enjoyed seeing uh, the picture of uh, AA number three up in the archives, a terrific archives here, because uh, I had known the name, but I'd never seen his picture before. Nice looking man and, uh, and a lawyer, as much as we're maligned these days, uh, <laughs> much as we're maligned these days. But uh, so it's uh, it's been it's been a wonderful journey. All, I, I, I lost my thought there for a moment thinking about how wonderful lawyers are. Uh, <laughs> the sharing of, of Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson, the sharing of Buck Doyle and, and myself and the sharing of some other person someday, maybe with one of my grandchildren. I want the message to be as simple and as pristine and as spiritually whole, as shiny and bright as a new penny, as it was when it was given to me. You know, this message, it's, it's just tremendous. I got it. It was over a generation old already. It had already crossed continents, crossed, crossed languages, uh, crossed generations, and yet it came to me, and those that are coming in now, it comes to them the same way they shared it at the beginning. So it's a wonderful gift we have. It's been a delight to be here. That first day, Buck said to me, he said, you know, Ernie, you don't have to say you're nuts. You don't have to say you're depraved. You can say you have an illness. Five, ten percent of us 
they used to say, now they say more, can't tolerate alcohol. Uh, something happens, we lose control. We're allergic to the chemical alcohol. And even in my foggy state, that appealed to me because we lawyers like loopholes. That put me between the horns of the, develop, uh, of the dilemma, being bad or nuts. I could say I was sick. But what was a mystery to me is of all the millions of people on this beautiful Sunday morning, I was thinking about I had a nice jog this morning. And, you know, while I was out there jogging, somebody was coming to in some jail someplace out of a stupor that had killed a kid last night someplace in this country with their car. And when they're confronted with the fact of the horrendous thing they did, can you imagine that remorse? That's happening all over. Our work, we don't have to worry about competition. Our work is far from done. Some little guy's being waked someplace in a funeral home today. Half grief, half relief, his family is there. It's still okay to die of cancer. It's not okay to die a drunk. There's still the shame there and the, and the, the, the additional pain. All these terrible things are happening right now as we're here to millions of people and you and I are sober and relatively happy. How were we picked out? The only way I can explain it, it was a gift given to me, perhaps, and you just this once. So I want to keep it and share it with you a day at a time till we get to a conference, not like the one this weekend, one that's never going to end. Bill's going to be there. Bob's going to be there. It's at a place called Happy Destiny. May God keep you and bless you.